different angles for this. But my questions are very simple. Number one, who is it that Jesus wants to be with? When he says, I want to be with you, who is he speaking to? Who is it? Question two, how much? How much does he want to be with you? My goal is to impact your understanding of your identity. Okay, this is very critical. Who do you, who do you say that you are? Who do you say that you are? Who do you think of when you think of yourself? When you introduce yourself to other people, when you think, oh, I'm going to meet this person for the first time and I want them to know these things about me. Who do you think of when you think of yourself? That's your identity, your core identity. And it's a very important part of your being, but most of us don't give it a whole lot of thought. We just naturally assume an identity uh, that's either been told as in, us as important or we've picked up over the years or just what we want. And a good example, I mean, in America, a lot of, especially men, you know, what do you do? That's your identity. I'm a consultant with Athens Group. That's my identity. For some people, it may be your family or what group you hang out with or what type of music you listen to that's really fundamental to your identity. Some people, it may be your accomplishments. You know, I, I was the uh, place kicker on the football team back in 1973 when we won the state championship. And that's the identity that's really at the core. When I think of myself and what I, what I really think about myself, that's what I think of. And then for others of you, it may be just the opposite. It could be that your identity is your lack of accomplishment. And when you think about yourself and you think of how other people view you, you think, it's because I've failed at these things. I've never succeeded in what I've wanted to do. So we all have this sense in our hearts of what is our identity. What I, my goal is to begin to shift that a little bit. Begin to plant a seed so that your sense of your own identity changes. For some of you, it's probably for all of you, it's in the midst of change. So I want to encourage it along its way. Because your identity is as a desired one. God desires you. You're defined by who pursues you. If I were to get a call on my cell phone right now, and it was George Bush, he wanted to talk to me, everybody would be like, oh, wow, he must be an important person, you know. George Bush wants to talk to him. Well, the supreme creator of the universe desires you. He wants to be with you. You can allow yourself to be defined by who pursues you. And I want you to begin to do that because it will change the way you think about yourself. It will change your ability uh, to minister and to take risks. You know, it's, if I mess up in the sermon, it's no big deal because God wants to be with me. <laughs> so, question one. Who does he want to be with? The answer to that is very simple. He wants to be with you. And he wants to be with you, and with you, and with you. He wants to be with you. And it wouldn't be a waste of time if I were to take the whole time this morning, talk to each person individually, and say, Barbara, he uniquely wants to be with you. Kathy, he specifically wants to be with you. Gary apple of his eye and he wants to be with you if I went around and just did it with every person in the room but I have other things I want to talk about so what I want you to do is do it yourself turn to the person next to you and tell them Jesus wants to be with you 
Go. Good, good. <laughs> You're saving me time. This is good. Okay, now what I want you to do, as you're sitting there, now I want you to take it internal. I want you to say out loud, Jesus wants to be with me. Good. Does that feel good? It should. He wants to be with you. That's a confession that you need to be making regularly. You see, love is always specific. Always specific. C.S. Lewis. How many of you went to the C.S. Lewis conference this weekend? All right. C.S. Lewis once said, you can't love mankind in general. You can only love this particular man or that particular man or this woman. And in fact, it's the people who claim, oh, I love mankind in general who usually can't stand anyone in particular. Love is very particular. It's always about specific people. It's always about details, events, groups, things that happen. To, to take my own marriage as an example, uh, the kiss in Taos, the moonrise in Switzerland, the argument about the copper pipes. These are all really specific things that that help make a framework for the marriage that I have with Amy. It's a wonderful marriage and uh, it's always about specifics. If you try to go general on it, it doesn't work. It's the nature of love. And God's love has always been like this. It's always towards specific individuals, towards particular groups, about detailed events, things that happen. And that's why the Bible's a story instead of a philosophy. It's a record of God's specific love towards particular people at certain points in time. Okay? Now we're at the end of the kind of his relationship with his disciples on the earth, but let's go back at the beginning and look at what he says. Mark chapter 3. I love this passage. It's like bookends with John 14.1. This is right at the beginning. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him. Can you hear the pre-echo? John 14, I want to be with you. That they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. And then Mark goes and lists the, the names of the twelve. They're very specific people. He called the ones he wanted. James and John and Peter and, and Judas and so on. Very specific. Now a response to this type of specific love might be to get offended that God's love is particular. But I think a more rational response is to be both exhilarated and afraid. Exhilarated and afraid. Exhilarated because you realize that it's a gift that's being given and you are, you are a candidate. You are a candidate to be a recipient of His specific love. You. You. Who you are. He would love you, precisely you. And then as you dwell on this and begin to think about it, you begin to realize, oh, if he loves me specifically, then that means he might actually notice me and see things about my life and details that maybe I don't want him to see. So there's this kind of tension between 
the, the love of God being particular and the, the, the attention of God being particular that is what we live in. In Luke, there's a remarkable passage, Luke chapter 12, where Jesus says, I'll tell you who to fear. Not the person who can kill the body only, but the person who can kill both body and soul. He knows everything about you, even down to the number of hairs on your head. So don't be afraid. It's this strange thing where he says, I'll tell you who to fear, the one who knows everything about you. So don't be afraid. And there's this awful ecstasy that we live in the middle of as Christians that I want to be in all the time, as much as possible, of knowing that the eye of God is on me and that his attention is on me and that he loves me, he wants to be with me. And there is no private in my life. There's nothing that I can hide away from him. In fact, the uh, first line of my life vision that's written in my Bible over there, you know, this is Dan Davis's. Uh, Doing, I think his goal is that everyone in the, in the world would write a life vision. The first line of my life vision that I wrote a couple years ago is, I want to act knowing that God wants to be with me. My life vision, I want to act knowing that God wants to be with me. So let me read again what Jesus says in John 14. And I want you to hear it specifically for you. Hear it as if Jesus was speaking to you. Not some other person. You. God's love is big enough for the other person. Don't worry about the other person. Hear it for you. John 14, 1-3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. Later on in John 17, when he's praying, he prays this prayer. It's very similar. Father, he's praying to his Father, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And I love this prayer for a lot of reasons. One of them being, it's very quickly answered in a very specific way. Less than 12 hours later, Jesus was hanging on the cross, right? And there's a thief on one hand and a thief on the other hand. And one of the thieves began to ridicule him and say, if you're the Son of God, go ahead, show us, take yourself down from the cross. And the other thief said, leave him alone. Leave him alone. He's done nothing wrong. And then that thief turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. An amazing statement of faith. And what does Jesus say to that thief? I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that great? He prays Thursday night. Father, I want them to be with me. And the next day, less than 12 hours later, he gets his first fruit. A very specific individual. A person who'd wrecked his life, deserved to die, turns to God just a little bit and says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, Ah, you'll be with me. I want you to be with me. And you will be. Love is very specific. Question two that I want to address today. How much... How much does Jesus want to be with you? What's that wanting like? 
Because you see there's two different kinds of wanting. There's a wanting that comes from your will. I, I want this because I choose to want it. And there's a wanting that comes from anticipation of pleasure. Let me lay this out for you. Imagine my two children, Noah and Peggy Joe. I don't know if they're in the room somewhere. There's Noah. I know. Noah and Peggy Joe. And there's a, they're at a party and there's party favors just spread out in front of them. You know, all sorts of things that they love. And they get to come and choose what they want. So they come up and there's all these things to choose from. And my son sees this package of airsoft bullets. He's like, oh, I want the airsoft bullets. He takes it. And Peggy Joe comes up and sees a Polly Pocket that she doesn't have and says, oh, I want the Polly Pocket. And takes that. Okay, that's the wanting that comes from anticipation of pleasure. You know, they've, they've tested a little bit of the pleasure of playing with these types of things. And then they're so excited because they get to have another experience of that. Now let's take the same scene and reshuffle it. They're the last ones to come and pick and there's only two gifts left on the table. The airsoft bullets and the poly pocket. My son walks up and he really wants the airsoft bullets. But he knows that if he picks the poly pocket, it will provoke his sister terribly. And it's something he loves to do. So he's in a dilemma. What will he do? Well, knowing my son, he'll say, I want the poly pocket. And Peggy will say, no, what? And it will go on from there. So that's the wanting that comes from his will. He didn't really want the Polly Pocket, but he wanted it. He chose to want it. So it's a legitimate question to ask, what type of wanting is it when Jesus says, I want those you have given me to be with you, to be with me where I am? I suspect that there's many people in this room who believe in the deepest part of their heart that God's desire for you is will-based. His desire for you, his want, is a want that springs from his will. Primarily. And you wouldn't say this, maybe. Deep down, you think that he barely tolerates you. He demonstrates the nobility of his character by screwing up his will and overriding his basic displeasure at your broken life. That's the nature of wanting that you think God has towards you. And I can suspect that there's many in this room who really believe this because this is me for a very long time. And I think one of the sources of this was an image I had of love from very early on, which was a picture of a train. I don't know, maybe some of y'all have seen this as well. But it's a picture of a train and the engine is the will. The locomotive is the will. And it drives the train and emotions are the caboose and they just get pulled along. Anybody familiar? Yes? Maybe with this? And the danger of course is that the caboose would start driving the train and then the train would be going backwards the wrong way and there'd be some sort of big wreck. Well, I, wanna, I want a train wreck this morning. I want to take this image and wreck it because I don't think it accurately portrays the God of the Bible as a person who's driven primarily a being driven primarily by will and that his emotions tag on the back. And we are made in the image of God. We're made to be like him. And so when we adopt this model, it begins to change the way we think about God himself. You know, a better image, equally masculine. I mean, it's got to be a guy that thought up this image, right? A train. Love is a train. You know, can't you see him coming home? Hey, honey, I figured it out. She's like, what? Love, it's, it's, it's like a locomotive. You're looking at him like, uh-huh. 
She's thinking in her mind, you know, I was thinking more like a symphony. A flower. A sunset. It's like, no, 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 a choo-choo train. Let me, let me explain it to you. <laughs> so an equally, an equally masculine metaphor might be an engine with pistons. Okay? If you know anything about engines, they have pistons, and all the pistons have to work for the engine to work well. They all have to operate smoothly. But they don't operate all at the same time. If they did, the engine would go, kadoom, kadoom. It wouldn't go anywhere. They're all moving at different times. And they're timed very specifically so that together they produce that throaty roar in Meredith Alliston's Harley Davidson. Rrr, you know, it's all the pistons working together. Okay? I think, I think that's a much more accurate picture of what love should be like. There's elements of love that have to do with the will. that have to do with the emotions and the mind and the body and, and your heart, things like that. And it's not the case that one of them needs to lead all the time and the rest get dragged along. They all work together. And sometimes the will will lead. There's times when you're going to have to make specific choices and say, I'm going to do this not because I want to, but because I need to. It's the right thing to do. But there's other times when your emotions will take the lead and you need to let them do that. It's awesome. And you say, oh, you know, I feel great today and so I'm going to go do such and such. And that's a great thing to do. You're following God. If you read the Bible asking the question of what are the motivations of God's heart, what is he like? you're going to find that it's as much, he's as much a God of rich and varied emotions as he is a God of action and word. All those things are embodied in his character, and we need to look like him. So I'm going to particularly challenge you men who, like me, uh, prefer to have the emotions be the caboose so they don't get in the way. You know, let's, let's adopt a different model. Let's start looking a little bit more like our Father in heaven and uh, allow the emotions to come along and work with the will in the way that he intended, in the way that... He does. So now we can ask the question this way. Which piston was it that was firing in John 17? Father, I want those you have given me to be with me. Was it mostly emotional or mostly willpower that Jesus was exhibiting, talking about? Well, I want to answer that by turning to a verse we, a little bit later on in John chapter 15, John 15, 9. And this is probably one of the most remarkable verses in the entire Word of God to me. John 15, 9. He starts off by saying to his disciples, just as the Father has loved me, just as the Father has loved me. So let's think about that. What is the Father's love for Jesus like? Is it a tolerance? A bear, you know. A bear tolerance? I think not. I think of the, of the passage in Proverbs 8 where there's a little description, a little hint at what the joy of the Father and the Son and the Spirit was like as the world was created. As they were working together to create the world. And we've got these beautiful art panels. And it describes the joy they found in each other. We rejoiced in each other. We delighted in each other's company. And then they begin to create the world and it talks about the joy they have in each part of it. And when they create mankind, you know, our delight then together was in mankind. There's that joy that the Father and the Son share. I think of the passage in most of the Gospels where Jesus is baptized and the voice comes from heaven. And the Father says, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear the affection, hear the warmth 
in the Father's voice as he speaks to Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I think of that, that desire that the Father must have to be with the Son that somehow he overrode for just a moment in time when Jesus was on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to be with you, he overrode for just one moment his desire to be with his son and allowed the sin of the world to be placed upon him. But surely it must have been the desire of the Father that said, No, this is, this is only a moment, and yanks him up from the grave. What, is it that, what was the power in Jesus that resurrected him? Part of it had to be the desire of his Father. And then immediate, almost immediately ascended. You know, oh, you're coming to be with me, son. That moment was enough. I want to be with you again. I missed you. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says. I also have loved you. Can you hear that? Isn't that remarkable? To the same degree, in the same kind of way, with the same emotion, that the Father loves the Son. That's how Jesus loves you. Jesus has that same kind of love for his disciples. He's telling them, as the Father loved me, that's the extent to which I love you. I wouldn't dare teach this unless it were written in the Gospel of John. It's wild. Jesus loves us in the same way the Father loves him. He doesn't merely tolerate us. He doesn't have another agenda that, that our salvation is done because he really wanted something else to happen. He delights in us. He enjoys us. He desires us. He pursues us. He thinks about us with longing. Now I think it's a little bit the want. Father, I want to be with them. It's a little bit like my kids meet me at the door. And they say, Dad, we want you to jump on the trampoline with us. I'm like, okay, why? Because you make us go high. You know? We want you, to, we want you to make us go high. And I love that. I love to go out and jump with them. There's that desire, the pleasure that they want, that anticipation. Want. It's funny, all this week, you know, I've been preparing this sermon, all this week, my youngest, not youngest, my middle son, Justice, who's five years old, has been coming to me just out of the blue and saying, Dad, I, I, I just want to be with you. It's so sweet, it like melts my heart. Dad, I just want to be with you. Can I sleep with you tonight? I just want to be with you, you know. Again, and again, and again, all through the week. It's that kind of want that kind of want that Jesus is saying, Father, I want to be with them. God, Jesus Christ, wants to be with each one of you. Look at this. Another account of the, uh, of the Last Supper, the passage we're looking at um, in John. Luke has an account of it. And look at what Jesus says. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Eagerly desired. Can you feel the weight of that? I've eagerly desired it. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Oh, and it says, before I suffer. So there's this sense in which Jesus was facing the cross and facing the suffering and facing the difficulty. And what was on his mind? I've eagerly desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer. For I won't eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. 
He was thinking about the pleasure of being with his disciples at that meal. And his mind was also on the pleasure of being with them after his suffering. This was a deeper thing in his heart than the dread of what he was about to go through. It's shown well, and I think, in the movie, The Passion. And Jesus stumbles. I don't know how many of you have seen it, but at one point he's in the road and he stumbles and Mary runs to him. And his words to her are, Mother, see, I am making all things new. There's that sense of, even as he was facing, you know, this pain and the cross, his mind was on what was going to be. He was going to be with you. He was going to be with them. That's where his, his mind was. The, writers to the writer to the Hebrews writes in Hebrews 12, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Have you ever wondered what was the joy set before him? Look at yourself. Point to yourself. It was for the joy set before him. You are the joy set before him. It was for the joy of being with you that he endured the cross. You specifically are his inheritance. The portion that he has chosen that satisfies him fully. It's all about delight. All about desire burning in the heart of Jesus. He wants to be with you. And he will be. Revelation 21.3 is like the great crescendo of Scripture. And there's a loud voice that trumpets. I think I have it on this overhead. Yeah, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now, finally, at long last, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. It's like the culmination of Scripture. And his his heart is anticipating that moment. Now, I imagine that there's some of you who are thinking, well, that's easy for him to say. And he's the preacher. He's standing up there talking. He doesn't know what I was thinking during worship. He doesn't know the failures that I went through in the last week. He doesn't know the pain that's in my heart right now. He doesn't know that my marriage is struggling and it could fly apart at any moment. He doesn't know what a wreck I've made of my life. Easy for him to say, Jesus wants to be with you. And it's a valid question. Does Jesus' desire to be with you change as a result? of your success or failure? Well, the answer to that question can be found in the passage immediately before what we've been looking at. We've been looking at John 14, 1 through 3. Let's turn back to John 13, which is actually uh, where I was supposed to preach from, so I probably ought to get to it. So as not to be... uh, Okay, John chapter 13. If you feel right now, oh my goodness, you know, there's no warrant. There's no reason for Jesus to want to be with me because of my life. I want you to consider the fact that the disciples' lives were in a much worse place at that point in time. Their lives were more of a wreck than yours right now. They were about to deny 
Jesus about to scatter at the moment of his greatest need. They had nothing going for them. And let's look at what Jesus says, because he draws a distinction. John 13 really paints a picture between two different ways of thinking about yourself. And I have a feeling that many of you are thinking of yourself as a Judas. As a Judas. When in reality, you need to think of yourself as a Peter. Let's look at how Jesus reacts, interplays, relates to these two, uh, these two disciples in John chapter 13. It's the passage about the foot washing and the communion. Chapter, verse 8, Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Speaking to Peter. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And can you see the heart of Simon Peter here? I mean, he's like 100% enthusiasm. He intends to do whatever Jesus wants and more. You know, I'm going to go above and beyond. He wants to do the right thing. He kind of screws up time and time again. But he has this underlying drive. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet, and his whole body is clean. And look what he says to Peter. And you are clean. And you are clean. He actually says it, it's a plural you. He says it to the whole group of disciples. Though, now he's talking to Judas, not every one of you. You are clean, although not every one of you. A little later on, verse 18, I am not referring to all of you. I know those whom I have chosen. And then to Judas, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So there's this againstness that Judas has with Jesus. Somehow he's turned himself against Jesus. He's turned, his posture is against Jesus. Whereas Peter's posture was for him, Judas's is against him. And it's really hard to be a Judas. It really is. You have to really work at it. To become bitter and despairing. To reject every chance that God offers you. Every kindness given to you to turn your back on that and, and be against Jesus. You know, C.S. Lewis, once again, he said, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. In the last account of the world, there's only two kinds of people. One is the person who says to God, your will be done. The other is the person to whom God says, your will be done. The person to whom God finally says, okay, you know, okay, if you've got to have it that way, your will be done. Or as he says to Judas here, what you are about to do, do quickly. I hope, I hope none of us ever hear those words from Jesus. What you are about to do, just go do it quickly. If you're in that place of being against Jesus, if there's this bitter despair in your heart and you're set against him 100%, I plead with you, turn, turn back. There's always another chance. Turn to him. But, what's more, far more likely is that if you're in this room, you desire to follow him. You really want to. The intention of your heart is to follow Jesus with everything that's in you. And you just find yourself messing up time and time and time again. So hear what he says to Peter. This is Peter. You guys are the Peters. 
Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered. He had no illusions about Peter, who he was and what was going to happen. No illusions. He knew it. He knows you. He knows the struggles that you're in. Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And that's John 13, 39 in the very next verse is what we started with. Let not your hearts be troubled. I mean, can't you see, let not your hearts be troubled. You can see the plaque on the wall in the office, right? The sunset and the birds flying. And let not your hearts be troubled. It's so sweet. But you've got to realize this was said to a group that Jesus had just rebuked fairly severely. You will disown me three times. Where I am going, you cannot follow me. You will be scattered. Each of you will go your own way. Let not your hearts be troubled. I want to be with you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Jesus is not surprised by your immaturity. He's really not. He's not surprised by my weakness and immaturity. Even more, it has absolutely no effect on his desire to be with you. Your immaturity has no effect on his desire to be with you any more than a father watching his toddler kind of walk around and then stumble and fall. He's just beaming at him. Oh, he's trying to walk. He doesn't say, oh, he fell down. <laughs> right? He's trying to walk. Get up. Do it again. Do it again. Fall again. That's what God's saying to you. I want to be with you. I'm your father. Sometimes you fall. You are beating yourself up over your addiction. He wants to be with you. You told a lie and feel sick about it. He wants to be with you. Your marriage is struggling. He wants to be with you. You know, it's, it's taken me a long time to realize this for my own marriage because what's true about this dynamic in the relationship with God is also true among ourselves. Love is very particular and there's this desire that, that interacts with our failings. And so early on in marriage, it's taken me a long time to learn that my wife really wants to be with me even when she's disappointed or upset or sad or a even angry with me. So early on in, my ma in our marriage, what would happen was uh, Amy would be upset about something um, or sad about something, and I would just leave. Like, I mean, physically. I would get up. I've got to, I've got to, just got to go take a walk. Honey. I, you know, I can't take this anymore. I go take a walk or go play basketball or go watch a movie or something. I, I physically left because I didn't want to experience that rejection that I thought was coming down the pipe. You know, she's sad. She's disappointed. She's angry with me. I've seen this before somewhere. And what follows is rejection. And I'm not going to have any part of it. So I'd leave. Well, then, I, that didn't work real well, you know, as you can imagine. <laughs> so, so I learned that, you know, okay, I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to walk out the door anymore. So I would stay with her, and we'd have a conversation about it. But where I didn't leave physically, I left emotionally. I was, you know, I shut up, locked the heart, barred the door, Katie. You know, and we'll talk about it, sure. But... Were we really talking about it? No. Okay? Because I didn't really believe she wanted to be with me when she was angry at me. And it's only really in the last year that I've begun to be able to say, ah, okay, you know, she wants to be with me even when I've done something that's really upset her. And I remember just even last week, 
one of those backyard arguments. You know what I mean? Where like, you know, the emotions are intense and they're being expressed very intensely and uh, you just have to get out in the backyard to get a little room, you know, so that these things can flow. So literally, I'm sitting here and we're having this intense conversation and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, she wants to be with me. She really does. You know, she's, she's looking at the future and she wants, she wants something, to, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, I want to be with her too. And I'm, I'm literally thinking these things and it helped me stay in her, to enter into her pain and be with her and her with me in such a way that we can say, yeah, you know, there's stuff that's failing in our marriage. There's ways we've disappointed each other, but we really, we want to be with each other for the long run. That's what's driving us. That's what we want. And so in the midst of weakness, in the midst of failure, there's still that desire, that cord of desire between us. And that's true with you and God. Even in the midst of your failure, He wants to be with you. And part of that, much easier for Him than it is for us, He's a creature that, a being, not a creature, that's the wrong thing to say. He is a being that lives outside of time. God lives in eternity. So it's much easier for Him, in a sense, than it is for us, because although He knows our, our sin in much more detail, he also sees what we are to become. He sees you as you are and as you are to be. Peter Kreef put it this way. He spoke yesterday at the C.S. Lewis conference. I heard him a couple years ago and he became immediately my favorite writer, or one of them. In heaven, the heart's deepest longing. Listen to this. Listen to this. I'll just read it over you and you listen to it. If I can find it, yeah. Okay. When you read the verse from the Song of Songs in which the bridegroom says to the bride, Behold, you are all fair, my love. There is not a spot or wrinkle in you. Do you think this is delightful but foolish? That love is blind? Then you are looking at love, not with it. The lover insists on exactly the opposite, that he is not blind, that he sees something that really is there. Not the lover, but the loveless one is blind. He sees only the caterpillar, while the lover sees the butterfly. Love has x-ray vision. We see the present sinner. God sees the destined saint. Dare we call God a fool? His judgments are not blind, but are clear-sighted, accurate, and exact. So we had better believe him when he calls us all fair. So we had better believe him when he says, I want to be with you. Regardless of your situation, your heart is turned towards me. You said yes to me. I want to be with you. I see you as you will be. There's many of you here who need to hear this. You need to let the Holy Spirit say it to you. Even in my weakness, even in my stumbling and failure, God desires to be with me. He's looking forward. He's looking forward. He's got anticipation in his heart when he looks at me. He's like my Father in heaven. I just fall in. He's, get up, do it again. I see the, I see the relationship 30 years down the road. You know, I see the young man, the young woman developing. He wants to be with you. Let your heart soak that in a little bit.
Just soak in it. It's so amazing. We need it so badly. Okay, well, I really do have uh, some concrete application, but I can't find them, which is all right. I'll just tell you. Concrete application. Okay, really, God, Jesus gave us the concrete application in 14.1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So how do you do this? Well, it's been a long process for me, and I'm only, I'm only just very much at the beginning of it, of having my identity changed by understanding God's desire for me. Well, one way is to pray the scriptures that we just talked about. Pray the scriptures about Jesus wanting to be with you. In fact, you've already done it. Remember when I had you say, Jesus wants to be with me up at the very beginning? You were praying the scripture. That was awesome. Congratulations. You did it. So you take these scriptures where Jesus says things like, even as the Father loved me, so have I loved you. And you say, Jesus, you love me to the extent that your Father in heaven loves you. That's the model. That's the yardstick you use when you measure out your love for me. The Father's love for you. You just pray that. You say it to your soul. Soul, he desires to be with you. He wants to be with you. He looks forward to the anticipation to the day it's face to face. That's number one. Pray the passages. And here I've got a, a scriptures I just, 30 or so, maybe 20 that I pulled out. Very simple scriptures that, and a prayer that goes with each one. You can take it and stick it in your Bible. Take your first five minutes of your quiet time or whatever, what, in whatever way you be with, you're, you're with God alone. Just set aside kind of praying about the day. Set aside praying for specific things and pray some of these scriptures. Pray them over yourself. And you'll find that the day is different and the Lord begins to change your identity and you have capabilities to take new risks that you didn't have before because you are secure. There's a foundational identity desired of God that's soaked into your spirit. So pray these. And you can come pick one of these after the service. Second thing, second application. Begin to turn it around. Jesus wants to be with you. Well, why don't you say, Jesus, I want to be with you. Begin to cultivate in your heart a desire to be with him. Tell him you miss him. I miss you, Jesus. And what was it like for the disciples? They walked with him. When they had a problem in their day, they could go run to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, we were arguing about which one would be greatest. What do you think? And he'd say, right, you know, he'd say, what do you thought? Like, oh, wow. You know, you're in the middle of struggles. Wouldn't it be great if you could just walk and talk to Jesus face to face about what you're going through? Miss him. Cultivate that desire. I miss you, Jesus. You've given me your spirit. Thank you. I love your spirit. But I want to be with you. I want to be with you. Begin to tell him that. This is his reward. You are his reward. You're the joy that's set before him. Lastly, a practical point you can take. Remember your brothers and sisters. Your fellow churches. He wants to be with them too. Let this change in identity in yourself begin to ripple out and affect the way you see other people. He longs to be with them. Let his desire for them find a home in you. You know, we said, as the Father loves me, so I have loved you. Oh, yes, Jesus. In John 13 and in John 15, he says, as I have loved you, so love one another. 
Wow. That's a whole nother dimension. Let his desire for them be in your heart. Okay? I'd like to take a little bit of time and just let you hear my good friend Philip Owens came today, for which I'm very grateful coming up, Philip. And Catherine, I think, is going to join him. And Philip's written a song called Be With Me. Very appropriate, right? And it, it'll give you a little bit of a feeling of someone who's dwelled in this type of desire, who's just cultivated it, and is just crying out to God, God, I want you to be with me. So I, I just want you to hear that. Uh, hear what it's like. Let it spark a little seed in you or encourage, encourage the plant that's already growing to cultivate this kind of desire for God.